Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. I've entitled our message, Wise Men Still Look to the Heavens, and this is my final sermon in the Heaven Came Down series. One of the most astounding discoveries astrophysicists have made in recent decades is that if gravity were just one trillionth of one percent, I've got all the zeros here, but I don't know that I could actually read them, but there's a lot of them, one trillionth of one percent stronger our universe would have reversed course long ago. And instead of being the Big Bang, which is one of the theories about the beginning of the universe, it's actually going out of style, believe it or not. But if we, you know, so the theory is Big Bang, and then it kept expanding, but sort of gravity evened out, and it might be expanding a little bit more. But they're saying now, if it was 1% stronger, our universe would have reversed course, and it would have collapsed catastrophically, ending in a big crunch the opposite of the Big Bang. Likewise, if gravity were just one trillionth of one percent weaker, our universe would have flown apart so rapidly that planets, stars, galaxies, all of the basic constituents of the universe would never have had a chance to coalesce and gravity would not have worked between them. We'd all be, as the great rock group Kansas said, dust in the wind. Is it, wow, that's not a warm reception. I'll be here all day. Don't forget to tip the usher. All right. Is it an accident that everything turned out so well? That gravity is not too strong or too weak, but just right? Sir Fred Hoyle, the late University of Cambridge astronomer and an avowed atheist, didn't think so, not for a second. After doing innumerable computations, Hoyle discovered that the odds of our being accidents of nature are comparable to the likelihood of a tornado sweeping through a junkyard and assembling scrap metal into a fully functioning Boeing 747. Although Boeing 747s aren't that great anymore either, we just learned that. Or is that the 737? All right. So small as to be negligible, he said, following his calculations. Even if a tornado were to blow through enough junkyards to fill the whole universe, he said, one arrives at the conclusion that biomaterials with their amazing measure or order must be the outcome of intelligent design. Now that is one of the world's leading astrophysicists who was an atheist. One trillionth of one percent and we are toast, another science term. Intelligent design is not Christianity. It's not. But it's an open door. It's an open heart. When avowed atheists start saying you can't explain the natural world apart from some designer, they don't become necessarily Christians, but it's an open door. It's a path towards the truth. Fred Hoyle, to some degree, started looking up a little bit. I don't know where he landed with his faith, but he's being honest about the universe. On December 6, 2020, Astronomers awaited the return of uh, Hayabusa 2. It's a toaster-sized capsule launched by the Japanese Space Agency, and on board was a payload of five grams of material from the asteroid Ryugu. 
While they were anxious for whatever made the 60,000-mile journey back to Earth, they were really hoping to see, what they were really hoping to see was what's called chondrules. Chondrules are small seed-like rocks measuring up to a few millimeters across embedded inside larger rocks, which are called chondrites. So chondrules make up chondrites. They're essentially rocks within rocks and are thought to have formed shortly after the birth of our solar system. The majority of the roughly 60,000 meteorites that humans have discovered are chondrites. Science believes that understanding how chondrites formed is key to unlocking how the solar system was formed. Science writer Jonathan O'Callaghan says, in our understanding of how planets came to be, there may be nothing as important as the mystery of the chondrule. But the secret has eluded astronomers. In fact, there's no consensus how these objects formed. The joke goes that there are as many theories about chondrule formation as there are chondrule scientists themselves. A few years ago at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, a stunned audience watched as revered scientist John Wood appeared to admit frustrated defeat in understanding their origin. So he's one of the best at understanding this and, and trying to figure out how everything came to be. He said, we still don't understand what the meteorites are telling us, and sometimes I wonder if we ever will. Just a few years later, he quit science cold turkey and turned his attention to oil painting and spending time with his wife. And to anyone following in his footsteps, he said, I wish you good luck. In other words, the smartest people on earth are all guessing. John Wood quit. Painting and playing bridge with his wife won over. I don't know if you ever looked up, but the door opened for it. People want answers. They are made in the image of God. Therefore, there is a spiritual quest that we are all on to some degree. And people want answers to the great questions of existence and purpose. In this case, with these scientists, existence. Nobody loves uncertainty. A woman named Eleanor Margulis wrote, I'm agnostic, but news about the Ukraine war is so scary right now, I've considered becoming a, a nun <laughs> just last year. The opening lines of a recent article in iNews reads, those of us without traditional religion are left to make our peace with uncertainty. There's nothing comforting about being agnostic. In the article, Eleanor Margulies laments her agnosticism and muses about the benefits of faith. It was in February, she writes, and while Russia tanks rolled into Ukraine, that I started to wonder if it was time to find God. Definite God, that is. Not the half-hearted agnostic one built on a Jenga tower of uncertainty. The addition of a heightened nuclear threat from Putin made me desperate for a vengeful Old Testament God, someone to smite the wrongdoers and oligarchs, the evil ones who know not what they do, when nothing is left of civilization but the cockroaches. The last time I felt so envious of religious people was when my mom was dying of cancer. Certainty about an afterlife sure would have come in handy then. And prayer might have created the illusion that it had some power over the situation. Instead, I was treated to the spiritual equivalent of the shrug emoji. I became a devout follower of one true religion of the 21st century, uncertainty. Those of us without traditional religion are left to make our peace with uncertainty. Agnosticism is uncertainty, theologically. And God doesn't want that for any of us. He wants us to have certainty, but he also requires sort of in that process of gaining certainty, he requires a measure of faith, not blind faith, not leap in the dark faith, what I would call reasoned faith or informed faith. God gives us enough evidence to believe we have found the truth, but granted, he doesn't stand in front of us every day in person. 
But today's story, in light of this uncertainty, is a beautiful example of God's response to people who have open hearts. And I want to read that story with you. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2. As you know, it's the beginning of the New Testament, first page in the New Testament. The Bible in the pew in front of you, about three-quarters of the way through, the New Testament starts over with page 1, and we're going to read that together, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, so that when you have found him, report to me, so that I may too come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, or from the east, would be better, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, this second time, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I uh, tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. There was a significant Jewish population in Egypt at this time. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. That was, was to, that was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought his life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream... He left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Two simple points I want to look at here. God kept his promises. Every Christmas sermon I preach has a point that sounds just like this. Because the gospel writers are constantly trying to show us how Jesus fulfills Old Testament promises or prophecies as we would call them from the Old Testament. 
the, the future is impossible to predict. And I could quote, and I've done it many times, I could quote all kinds of industry experts who made fools of themselves in their areas of expertise by trying to predict the future because nobody does it well. It's why some of the biggest corporations in the world won't be in business in 20 years. People miss the future. Today's market leaders may not be relevant in 20 years. Nobody can predict the future. So when God states what will happen hundreds or thousands of years prior to when these events take place, and he does it in exquisite detail, and it's recorded and preserved so as to leave no doubt, and then it actually happens, we know that it's impossible from a human standpoint. It's like a, a, a miracle of sovereignty. It, it inspires faith. It screams of God's presence and activity. And it creates what I would call reasoned or informed faith. And as it relates to Jesus, we have all kinds of these promises. Some say, now these aren't all about his birth, but by, by one count, I believe it's John Ankerberg and his buddy who wrote a book about this. I believe they said there's about 456 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. And many do relate to his birth. Genesis 3.15, that Jesus would be born the seed of a woman. So a future savior, a future person who would overcome the effects of the fall and Satan would be the seed of a woman. The Hebrew construction there basically demands a virgin birth, according to many scholars. So on the second page of scripture, you've got a virgin birth predicted. Genesis 3. Genesis 12, he's going to be Jewish. He's going to be the seed of Abraham. Genesis 49, he's going to come through the line of Judah, one of the 12 tribes. 2 Samuel 7, he's going to come in the line of Judah through the line of David, King David. Because of that, Micah 5, 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem because that's where David was from. Isaiah 40, he's going to be preceded by another prophet, a very famous prophet that we know to be John the Baptist. Matthew 2 highlights Many fulfilled prophecies. If you look through the, the, the verses in Matthew 2, you'll find that he's highlighting five. I want to mention two of them. The first is that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Luke gives us the whole story. And that's what we talk about on Christmas Eve. Luke chapter 2, that, that famous story, the beautiful starry night, the shepherds seeing angels, all of that. Luke gives us the whole story of how Mary and Joseph get to uh, Bethlehem in the first place, that you know, the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, uh, demands a census of all the known world that, that he uh, controls anyway, and that would be for military and taxation purposes. And so Luke says that's the backdrop that got Mary and Joseph on this trip of 80 miles from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, and that when they get to Bethlehem, you know, there was no room at the Super 8, and we know that story, and that sent him to the cave where Jesus was born. There he's born in a manger, which shows this approachability of God, that he comes into the human family to this poor couple, and he's born in a cave, and he's laid in a feeding trough, and shepherds, the ones who are outcasts, religious outcasts, can't go to church. They're the ones who God announces it to. Luke gives us all of that information. Matthew wants us to know he's born in Bethlehem as well, but he doesn't give us that scene at all. He simply states it, and then he reaffirms it in the dialogue that we read between Herod, the king, and the religious crowd. But we, we look at this and we're like, yeah, that's part of the story. But you need to understand, it, it's everything. Because without Bethlehem and without a birth in Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth is a fraud. You, you can't have Jesus, miracle worker, unless you have Jesus, seed of the woman, 
Jewish, line of Judah, line of David, Bethlehem, preceded by a prophet. It's all essential because God has given us these details ahead of time. They're critical. Prophecy is like God's fingerprints in history. It's it's heaven's DNA saying, when these things come true, you'll know it's me. So Matthew includes Bethlehem so that anyone familiar with Messiah could check that box. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. But the prophecy I care about most in this passage is the one that probably made the Magi look for a star in the first place. I love this. I, this, I learned about this very late in my ministry career, uh, and I find it incredibly fascinating. I can't tell you with 100% certainty that this is, this is absolute because uh, theologians don't totally agree on this, but it is very likely a prophecy that we have in the Old Testament fulfilled in the Magi seeing the star. And it's what made them look for it in the first place. It's a fascinating story. The date was around 1400 B.C., 14 centuries before Mary and Joseph and Jesus Israel is ready to enter the promised land. So they've been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years, I believe about 430 years, plus or minus. And then they come out of Egypt. They are in the wilderness area for about 40 years. Israel is traveling through Moab. They're sort of distant bad cousins, if you will. They're traveling through Moab after experiencing the miraculous. I mean, they have seen the plagues that God delivered upon Egypt. They observed all of that. God parted the the sea for them as they walked across on dry land. They're starting to win some regional battles as they're ready to come into the promised land. God is clearly with them, and word is getting out that Israel, this little country of, well, it's not that little, two to three million people probably at the time that's on the move in nomadic fashion has a powerful God who looks out for them and is taking care of them. So every regional king in the area is a little concerned. One of them was named Balak. Balak. So Balak hires a seer, S-E-E-R, or a pagan prophet, or let's just an astrologer or male witch, take your pick. He hires one of those dudes to curse Israel. Now, this is the kind of story that is a perfect example of what liberal theologians dismiss in the scriptures. They read a story like this, like, well, give me a break, you know, all the myth and legend of the Old Testament, and it can't be true. But I got to tell you something. There are caves around the world with Balaam's prophecies etched on their walls in Aramaic. Balaam was a famous guy. We have non-Bible texts about Balaam until the 6th century B.C. He is mentioned by the historians Josephus, a Jewish historian, and Philo. He is referenced in the Bible and the Quran. He was a person of history who was an expert in basically dark magic who was hired to curse Israel. He's a bad dude. So Balak has Balaam, a couple of great boys' names that I wouldn't recommend. Balak has Balaam on retainer, all right? Balaam begins his work. So I'm assuming he's doing this. If you read the text, it probably would indicate this. I didn't go read the whole story. 
He builds pagan authors, altars. He does that. And I think he would have done them in sight of you know, Israel as they're spread across the plains ready to enter the promised land. So I'm assuming he's building these pagan altars up on a mountain where he can see Israel and he's going to curse them. This is in Numbers 24. Three times he curses Israel or he attempts to curse Israel. And that's what he does. That's what he's paid to do. And he's good at it. Three times, God intervened. And out of Balaam's mouth came blessings towards Israel. And he couldn't help himself. Now what's going on here is Israel has a future purpose. God has promised all the way back to Abraham that Israel is going to be basically a blessing or a light to the world. The prophets call Israel a light to the Gentiles. God has this plan that he's going to take this little country between three major continents on all the major trade routes. He's going to supernaturally protect them and bless them so the known world can come to know who he is. And eventually he'll deliver the savior of humanity through their bloodline. God needs to protect his plan. And you've got these regional kings who are going to gang up on Israel. They're going to try to wipe them out. God needs to protect his plan, his promises, his prophecies. Balaam's been hired to curse Israel. And three times out of his mouth come blessings to the point where he's actually quoting the Abrahamic covenant of how God is going to bless this country. So, Balaam gets fired. It's a tough day for Balaam. But he's not done. Because in his resignation letter, he writes this. The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge. Notice the words he uses of God. This is like a deep theological word for who God is. And the most high, that's a very interesting term. Something Daniel might use. Knows the knowledge of the most high who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him. Okay, who is he talking about? I see him, seeing something in the future, but not now. I behold him, but not near. In other words, not in the near future. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. All right, now. That's the prophecy. This is clearly a prophecy about Jesus or Messiah. Everyone agrees to that. The question is, because scepter relates to Messiah's authority, rulership, the question is the word star. That's the question. Now, if you look throughout scriptures, I'm going to admit this because I want you to understand both sides of the star can stand for a person. Star, the word star was used figuratively, I believe, in Job of angels. It could be used in a sense of Jesus, but if you take it literally at all, it could be a star. And that is the word. Which is interesting because what do the Magi say when they get to Jerusalem and they bump into Herod? Where is he born king of the Jews? We saw his star. It sounds like there's an antecedent there, that they're referring to something in history where this was predicted. We saw his star. Now, it could be because they're astrologers and astronomers, they believe that the future is written in the, in the skies, and whenever a king is born, maybe there's a special star or something like that. They would have that in their theology, if you will. 
but they seem to be referencing a star that has an antecedent. They were looking for it. We've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. His star, his star, referenced beforehand. Many scholars believe that they were looking for this star. 1,400 years after it was prophesied, they were looking, but God kept his promise. Now, more on that soon, because there's more evidence of this, which I'm going to talk about, but we're going to get into the second point here. Second, God reveals himself to those willing to look up and respond. The most practical aspect of this passage is what I'm going to call the comparative response of the three different persons or groups of persons who are confronted by the Magi with this truth that they've seen a star and they're coming to find this king, born king of the Jews, and they want to worship him. You've got the Magi, Greek word magoi. We get our word magic from this, actually. So this is, you know, kind of got a dark side to it. The Magi, or as we call them, wise men. Not sure why we call them wise men. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem, that's another party or group. And Herod, who is the present king of the Jews. Now, just to get rid of a little uh, mythology about this, not mythology, but just some things that aren't true. Uh, There's three gifts, so sometimes people say, well, there must have been three of them. There's absolutely no historic reason to believe there were three of them, probably a much larger group. And some people call them kings because there's a verse in Isaiah that talks about kings coming and worshiping before the Messiah. It's not connected to this at all. There's no reason to believe they're kings. There's no reason to believe there are three three of them. They're actually called the Magoi, which is a technical term that I'm going to describe to you about who they actually were. They weren't kings. So they're the Greek Magoi. They began as a tribe in the Median Empire. So when you had the Medo-Persian Empire many, many centuries before, they were a tribe. Some say they go back before that. Some say Balaam actually might have been sort of a precursor to this. They're a sort of a pagan version of the Levites. You know how Israel had this Levitical tribe out of which came all the people who served in the temple, who served in their communities, and the priesthood was a part of that? This would sort of be like the Levites. It's it's sort of a religious tribe, if you will. They became a priestly class. And they became attached to the royal courts of eastern nations like Babylonia and Persia. Possibly others as as advisors like Arabia and India. There's evidence of that. Now, this is the key here. They had access to Jewish scriptures and beliefs. Remember, thousands of Jews were deported to ancient empires. In 722, the Assyrians came and took over part of Israel, and they deported a whole bunch of Jewish people. In 586, the Babylonians came in, and they conquered the Assyrians, and they deported a bunch of more people from Israel to Babylon. Daniel, the prophet, was one of these, all right? So this is key. Daniel is connected to this group. Remember, Daniel had the ability to interpret dreams and visions, and so when he did that in these ancient empires, He rose in rank. He did this for the king of Babylon. He rose in rank. In fact, in Daniel 2.48, it says he was promoted to chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, we want to look at these as like all good guys and they kind of are just seekers after truth, but it included a lot of like dark stuff here too. 
In chapter 511 of Daniel, I want to read something for you. Now, this is when Babylon is going to fall to Persia. There's a man in your kingdom in whom, a spirit of the holy, is, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. He's talking about Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him, Daniel, now get this, Daniel was appointed chief of the magicians, the conjurers, that's not a good group of people, all right? The magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. These are all sort of the dark arts, you know, sort of the fortune tellers, the soothsayers, the Ouija board people. That's, these are all the people who are worshiping the wrong God. Daniel was in charge of them. Now, I'm not, obviously, Daniel wasn't one of them. But imagine the, most, imagine the part of the political or religious or philosophical system in the world that makes you the most angry. And now you're in charge of them. All right? Daniel was in charge of a group like that. Daniel wrote prophecies and would have shared them with this group of people. He wrote prophecies in Daniel chapter 9 that nailed the time of Messiah's birth at 483 years from a decree from a Persian king to rebuild Jerusalem. It would have been the time that Jesus was born. So the Magi knew Jewish history. Daniel had been in charge of this group of people centuries before. There were all kinds of Jews that stayed in that part of the world, even though they could come back. They knew Balaam's prophecy. Some may have been Jewish, since thousands of Jews stayed in Persia. This group of people, this Magi, were astronomers. They looked at the stars like science. They were also astrologers, like they were into some of the dark stuff as well. They believed the future was in the skies. And, and they, weren't, they didn't all have theology degrees from the right seminaries. These were kind of an interesting collection of seekers after truth and soothsayers and fortune tellers and who knows what. They were sort of seekers from an agnostic perspective trying to find truth anywhere. They knew Jewish prophecy. And the night Jesus was born, a star appeared over Bethlehem and this group of pagan agnostics who would look for truth from the heavens and God above or Satan below. It didn't matter to them. And they did both. 900 miles away, they saw the star, likely the star that Balaam talked about 1,400 years before because they were looking for it because Daniel told them 483 years there's going to be a, the, the Messiah is going to be born. Now, we don't know what the star is. Books have been written on it. Could have been a comet. Could have been a planetary alignment that brightened the sky. Some say that happened around this time. Some would say it's just a supernatural light that God put in the sky to, to make them see it. I've wondered personally, I don't know if I've seen this theory, so this would be the Paul theory. What if it's the angels appearing to the shepherds as a bright, brightness in the sky that looks like a star from distance? I don't know. But they knew the prophecies. That's a positive. They were astrologers. That's kind of a negative. And God used both. And they made the trip, having looked for the star that would indicate a Jewish king that would save the world. They made the trip of many, many, many months 
to find what was under that star. Now, this wrecks all the manger scenes, doesn't it? All right? Remember, Mary and Joseph have this little baby. They're in the cave. They got the manger. The shepherds find them there. And when your neighbor puts up the manger scene, what do they also put there? The wise men. They're wrong. Now, don't go in 30 below to your neighbor's house and kick down their manger scene. All right? Don't do that. But you do want to take the wise men and put them on the other side of the driveway, like they're in transit to get to Jesus, because that's what actually was going on. All right. Will you laugh next week? Please? I know it's cold. All right. Some suggest they had a military escort. That because of who they are, they would have had a military escort. Hence, they come and it caused a stir in Jerusalem. Some say they would have been escorted by soldiers. Now, I also want you to know this. They came 900 miles for Jesus. The natural place to land was Jerusalem. Now, they couldn't have told, you know, from from modern-day Iraq, looking at the star when Jesus was born... They wouldn't know exactly what was below it. It looked like it was over Israel. Jerusalem was the place to go. That's the capital of Israel. They would expect a king to be born there. But they certainly couldn't locate Bethlehem under that star when they started. So they knew they were going to have to investigate a little bit. They come to Jerusalem. They're, they're asking about this king of the Jews. They assume the people in Jerusalem would know where it was. The star, the star had not continued to shine all the time. It had ceased. So that's the place to start. They get there, and it causes a stir because they're magi, magi, looking for this king, born king of the Jews, also because they're not part of the Roman Empire. Now, I've never really seen much of this, but I was reading an article about this. They're Parthians. The Parthians in Rome have had, like, wars recently in that part of the world. And so, so you've got this part of a rival empire coming in to talk to Herod, who is a puppet king for Rome, and they're coming possibly with soldiers saying, you know, where's this king born to the Jews? Looks like there could be a new sort of alliance that would be a threat to Rome. This is religious and political. Later that night, the star reappeared, and they were led to Bethlehem, the home where Mary and Joseph had settled, and there they worshiped Jesus. And by worship, they're not like Christians, just like the disciples weren't Christians. They didn't know everything Jesus would become, but they knew he was the prophesied king of the Jews, and they paid him homage. In that sense, they worshiped him. Now contrast that with a couple other groups of people there. The religious crowd. Herod gathered the chief priests, they're typically the Sadducees, and the scribes, they're typically the Pharisees. Those are sort of like the, uh, a couple of the major political slash religious parties. They couldn't stand each other. They, they never did banquets together. They didn't get along. And here they are on the same page. Herod might have gotten them together separately because he knew they didn't like each other or agree to see if they'd both say the same thing. They both agreed. Bethlehem is the place where this king would be born. These two groups knew the scriptures. Uh, some of them believed them a lot more than others. The Sadducees weren't very good at the scriptures. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They were, they were sort of depressing. That's why they were sad, you see. Sometimes, sometimes preschool Sunday school just stays with you. The Pharisees were very committed to the scriptures. These groups longed for a Messiah. They longed for deliverance. They have a group of magi in front of them Pagan, foreign Parthians with a lot of history and quite a story. They had seen this star prophesied. Bethlehem is six miles south. 
and it's not 40 below wind chill, and not one of those religious leaders is ever listed in Scripture as having the wisdom or the spiritual curiosity to make a trip six miles to the south to see if the hope of the world was born there. The shepherd's rumors from you know, a number of months before this, of this, what they saw in the sky and coming to Mary and Joseph, those would have spread. They would have made their way to Jerusalem. It's six miles. Nobody made the trip. See, Matthew has a theme going here. In Matthew chapter one, we have four unexpected individuals that show up in Jesus' genealogy, four Gentile women. You've got Tamar, you've got Rahab, you've got Ruth and Bathsheba, four Gentile women with some serious sexual history, all in Jesus' genealogy. Without them, we don't have Jesus. It's making a point. Now a group of pagan astronomers slash astrologers are willing to look to the skies and they get evidence that God has come into the human family and they travel 900 miles with an escort to see what has happened spiritually to the world. Talks about the four Gentile women. He talks about pagan astrologers. And he's gonna give stories about himself in a few pages. A Jewish boy gone rogue. A boy who was probably raised to be a priest, name is Levi also. Matthew, Levi, same guy. And now he's a tax collector for Rome. He's a bad guy in Jewish thinking. He's collecting taxes from the people the Jews hate the most and sending them back to Rome and getting his cut. See, religion doesn't guarantee an open heart. In fact, often it's the fastest way to close a heart. And Matthew's showing us that. You've got the Magi who are responding to the evidence they see from 900 miles away from a promise 1,400 years before. And you've got the religious crowd that can't travel six miles to see if Jesus has come into the human family. And then you've got Herod. Herod is special. He was Rome's puppet king. He was, literally, he was half Jewish, so the Jews didn't really accept him. But there was no room in Herod's heart for anyone but Herod. I mean, he was known for being pretty vicious. He was sort of paranoid. Actually, I shouldn't say sort of paranoid. He was paranoid. He had executed no less than one wife, and I believe when I read this once it was his favorite wife, which is an interesting term. No less than one wife and two sons. His own blood. Because they might be a threat to his rulership. In fact, it was said of Herod, this was like, there, there are quotes about Herod, better to be his hus than his fuyas. Hus is pig, fuyas is son. Better to be Herod's pig than his son. It was safer. His only interest in Jesus was to eliminate a threat to his autonomy. He didn't want any rivals, so he feigned interest in the Magi's story. He manipulated them a little bit, and then God warned them in a dream not to go back and tell Herod where they'd found Jesus. Because Jesus is God's investment in salvation and he needs to be spared. And so actually the third theme of Matthew 2, which I'm not going to give you a point, is how God through dreams and visions to Joseph, the Magi, etc. You see four of them here. How he supernaturally kept warning them to keep Jesus alive. Move him here, move him here. No, move him here. And that's a theme in chapter 2. The third point that I just gave you, I guess. Herod would have no rival. And so when he realized he had been tricked, 
He sent a group of soldiers on horseback down to Bethlehem, and they went house to house, finding young couples with young children, and any little boy two years old and under was run through probably with a sword or drowned. Bethlehem was a small town, but scholars estimate about a dozen little boys died that day. Just a couple apps and we close. Wise men still look to the heavens. Listen to the evidence of history about Jesus. When, when you understand all the prophecies that start on the second page of the Old Testament about the seed of the woman and all these other things, and Balaam's star, I mean, just some of the, some of the things that are so incredible that, that God puts these details in, like his, his DNA and history gives us this stuff hundreds and thousands of years ahead of time, and it all comes true. It's, it should be so faith-building for us. Listen to the evidence from history about Jesus. God wants us to have certainty. There's enough here. There's enough here to give us certainty. I, I wish Jesus would come and appear to me physically every day and talk to me. I'd have a little more certainty. He doesn't do that, typically. Although, interestingly, a lot of Muslim conversions today are because of dreams about Jesus, which are just like that. Pretty significant percentage of Muslims becoming Christians have supernatural visions of Jesus. It's a real thing. I don't get that. I wish I did. I don't get those. But there's a lot of evidence. Second, never lose the heart of the Magi. The Magi are the most, I mean, that's just a group of people you wouldn't expect to be at the manger. And they, and they weren't again there a few months later at the house, but you wouldn't expect them to be there. Pagan astrologers, dark magic. But knowing the Jewish scriptures as well, I'm interested in truth from any source. And you've got this comparison between the religious, the Herod, the Magi. It's a theme of Jesus, you know, that who, who's got the open heart? Matthew is showing us here that the Magi have the open heart. Heart condition matters. Jesus talked about it many times. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because he talks about spiritual deafness and spiritual blindness. Parable of the sower. We're supposed to have hearts that you know, receive the seed of the word of God and, and they grow. And, and I gotta tell you, the older I get, the more I read, the more I understand people. Usually when it comes to spiritual matters, it's not the evidence that matters. It's the heart condition that receives the evidence. There's plenty of evidence, but usually it's not the evidence that, that matters. So as you go into 2024, what kind of heart do you have? Do you have a heart like the Magi where you, you follow the evidence of Jesus? You follow whatever God gives us to, to, to make sure you're following Jesus? Or do we have the heart of the religious where we kind of feel like we kind of, kind of got it all figured out and... Jesus could be six miles away and we don't make the trip or do we have the heart of Herod sometimes where even though, yeah, of course we're following Jesus, we're here in 35 below, are you kidding? We're following Jesus, but still at times in our lives we still have corners of our hearts where we're not going to allow any rivals. That's our part. That's, our, that's what we control. God doesn't get in there. What's our heart condition as we go into this year? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. And we love these stories, and we believe they're not stories in the fictional sense. We love these stories because they're history. And they've been so carefully preserved for us 
as evidence of your DNA in the history of this world, in the history of salvation. We believe. We believe these are true. And we're excited about them because we see how you've orchestrated salvation's plan so that we could have a Savior. Thank you for that. I pray that as we go into the new year, even though most of us here are probably pretty devout followers of Jesus, you want all of us all the time. You want every part of our heart. I pray that we would have open hearts like the Magi. They're the examples of the ones who made the trip. The religious wouldn't, Herod wouldn't, the Magi did. Help us to continue to be seekers after all that is true and, and wanting to follow you wherever it takes us. Help us to be those kinds of people in this new year. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.